This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today I'm in Prague, Czechoslovakia. I'm here with an old friend of mine at the Suns meeting. His name is Michael Lee Levy. Mike Levy uh, trained at USC and he was my chief resident's chief resident. So when I arrived in Los Angeles, Mike was an attending. He specializes in a very interesting field, which is pediatrics and skull-based surgery. So Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, I know that we can talk about just about anything with you. Uh, you are a true neurosurgical athlete. I understand you were a big-time surfer in college. Yes, back, uh, back many years ago. Yeah, and you were on the cover of some surfing magazines, is that right? I was on the cover of a, a periodical that came out through Los Angeles. And and they called you Dr. Doom. Well, the, my board had a, a picture of Dr. Doom. I always liked Dr. Doom from when I was a kid. So it had a picture of Dr. Doom shooting a lightning bolt out of his fist. Uh, uh, it was on the bottom of the board, so when you hit the lip, people could see the bottom of your board, so they'd see this arm shooting a lightning bolt out. Wow. Well, Mike uh, is an amazing uh, neurosurgeon. He has done so many interesting things in our field, but I wanted more to focus on the things he's done sort of outside of neurosurgery proper. And Mike is has had this knack in Southern California for hooking up and meeting the most interesting sports celebrities. Uh, I understand he used to play basketball with Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, yes. Across the street from Shaq's home was a, a basketball court. And uh, so he, his uncle, uh, his brother, and a number of people they would call Team Twism, which was the world is mine, would play, and then I would play with the Blanks family. And uh, so uh, every weekend we'd have a game. Oh, this is Billy Blanks from the Tybo yes. product. Yeah, okay, great, great, great. Well, I wanted to talk about a, a fairly controversial issue because I know you're not afraid of controversy, which is um, neurosurgery's intersection with the fighting sports. And um, you yourself are a boxer, right? Yes. Okay. How, how did you get into that? When I was younger, um, there were a lot of us in the house, and uh, my mom would basically direct us to the boys' club um, in Seaside, uh, California, and, and there one of the sports was boxing. Okay. And so we would just beat on one another all day, and then we'd be tired at night, and go to sleep so I think she was pretty happy that uh, uh, that that was a sport that we chose to to pursue so that's really where it came down to is just trying to uh, spend time not get in trouble and and do something that we construed to be productive at the time so you and your brothers would go to the the boys and it was just a boys club right not boys and it girls was the club. boys club it was the boys club it was actually in Elastero Park which is kind of on the border of Monterey and Seaside on the Monterey Peninsula okay and that's in the, was that in the 60s or 70s that would be the early 70s. Early 70s. Okay, great. So, so you learn how to box uh, and you, you develop a love for this sport, so to speak, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. So in, in the course of your career, while you're training to be, be a neurosurgeon, while you're practicing neurosurgery, while you're an attending professor, you've had a lot of interactions with professional boxers, right? Yes. How did that start? I mean, a lot of folks have an interest, but how do you get into that world? Uh, probably just through the gym, um, in Los Angeles, uh, at that time, Billy Blanks had, uh, opened up a bigger gym. Uh, a number of boxers would train there. Uh, Michael Nunn, uh, James Tony, 
um, uh, amongst numerous others. And, uh, and so there was a lot of sparring going on. I liked boxing. I was interested in sparring. And so uh, Mr. John Arthur, uh, who really was uh, the trainer and parent figure for everybody, um, started to have me spar with James. Um, I'm not certain exactly why. Uh, I, I think he wanted somebody that was bigger and slower that didn't mind getting hit. Um, and so, uh, so I sparred, started sparring with James uh, at the gym. Okay, he, this is James Tony. Yes. Okay, and he was a he was a champion, right? He was a he he had the the title in multiple categories, multiple weight categories. Yeah, James held belts in four weight classes, and. Uh, really just was kind of fortuitous because he was working out at the gym. Uh, we would spar upstairs, downstairs. The gym was in, old, in an old bank. And so there was a bank vault downstairs and inside that large bank vault was a ring. Okay. And so most of the sparring was in that ring. Um, but, but the way James prepared for a fight was he would continuously, he would run and spar. Uh, and he would spar sometimes with six different people. Uh, or uh, we would go to Freddie Roach's gym and would spar there. But uh, that's really kind of where it occurred. And then I would be working out at the gym. Uh, Mr. Arthur would come in with James, see me, grab me, and then we would, uh, we, we would spar that day over the weekend. Now, this is as an attending, right? Yeah, I was... Uh, okay. Uh, actually, I think it was late 90s, so yeah, I wasn't attending at Children's Hospital. You were young attending. And when you're sparring at that time, what, you, what size gloves are you using? Oh, we're using, we're using just powder gloves. I powder mean, gloves yeah, so okay. uh, we're not using um, um, anything that, well, it all hurts. <laughs> I, I really think kind of the, the, the purpose of the, the glove is to protect your hand more so than the other person. Uh, but you have to be fully wrapped, so Mr. Arthur would always wrap myself and James. Um, he would try to be in both corners, which was difficult because the, the vault wasn't that big, uh, and the ring kind of took up the entirety of it. I'm not certain what the size of the ring was. It was regulation, but it wasn't a big ring, which was problematic because um, I was taller than James. James is only 5'10". Okay. So I, I think James lies and says he's 5'11 or taller, but he's 5'10". Uh, but he has the wingspan of somebody that's probably about 6'2". Oh, so he's got a long reach. So wow. he has a very long reach. So I'm 6'1", so I'd always stay away from him, or I'd try to stay away from him. But what happens is you let pride get the better of you, and then you get up close, or he, <laughs> uh, he backs up to the ropes, which is where he really spends a lot of time and, and can hurt you when his back's on the ropes. Now, you're getting in the ring with him just to spar for for him for practice, for you for... He's just getting ready for a, for a fight. Okay. And I was just doing it because I'd been fighting for many years and I enjoyed it. It was now, something I enjoyed doing. I'm going to direct our listeners to, to some of our social media content where Mike has been generous enough to share some of the pictures of this. And, and when you're sparring, you're wearing headgear and he's wearing headgear, right? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes no. <laughs> okay. uh, I didn't like the headgear because James would cheat. Uh, he, he would pay close attention to everything. Uh, and he would notice if uh, your headgear wasn't on tight enough. So when he hits you, what would happen is the headgear would shift. Oh. And so um, it would obscure your vision. Yeah. And then he'd kind of back off and act like 
come on, you know, straighten your headgear up, and then he would hit you while you were straightening your headgear. <laughs> okay. So, you, no, but James was interesting. If he didn't feel that you were putting 100% or hitting him as hard as you could, he would hit you harder. Okay. Uh, but he, he wanted you to be 100%. So it's interesting. So this fighting culture, I was just watching that documentary on the airplane about uh, Mike Bisping, you know, the, the MMA fighter and how yes. he went blind and essentially blind in one eye and kept fighting. It's so interesting to me how the psychology of fighting uh, is so integral and you have to get to know these people as you're in the ring, right? That, that, you, that you, there's a strategy to it. There's a, there is. And you, you, I mean, the more you know about your opponent, obviously, the, the better chance you may have. The problem with James is he could imitate anybody. He was a boxing historian, so uh, if you asked him to fight in the style of somebody, Joe Frazier, uh -huh. he, he would he could imitate Joe Frazier. Uh, but he was very good at switching things up. He just he just was that good. He's like a physical savant. He can like like he, can he was mime just it. he was just faster, slicker. Wow. Um, there were times where it just seemed like he was invisible. Now I gotta admit that maybe I'm a little more cowardly, but if if a, if a uh, if a title fighter, if someone who'd already won the world championship in a in a weight class, doesn't matter what weight class, asked me to spar with him, I would respectfully decline because of fear, out of fear of getting in the ring with someone that's so dangerous. Yeah, there can't be any fear involved. That, that's actually why I like it. It's very similar to some of the surgeries we do that you can't go in scared. You can go in prepared and you can go in with expectations of what may happen. But um, uh, one of the things he taught me is you really need to be devoid of fear, uh, devoid of emotion. Uh, most of his emotion and the things he would say and do in the ring were just for show. Uh -huh. uh, I mean, he was just dead on when he fought. Uh, and it was, uh, it just reminded me of operating. It's kind of strange, but uh, you're absolutely serious. And, uh, you know, I just love one of my favorite sayings was Joe Lewis, and, and some people always attributed this to Mike Tyson, but it's actually Joe Lewis who says, uh, uh, everybody has a plan until they get hit. Yeah. And, and it's very true, is uh, you, you prepare and you go in and, uh, and you think you have the perfect game plan and then things go terribly wrong. And uh, much as like when we're in the operating room, you need to have a plan B and a plan C. and and fear can't be one of them, panic can't be one of them, emotion can't be one of them. Um, and I, I think that's, it, it's so weird that, that there seems to be that correlation between uh, operating and, and, and the sport of boxing or the art of boxing, but it's true. But to, to be able to fight with somebody that talented and become close friends with somebody that talented was, it was really just an honor. It was yeah. uh, an amazing thing. I, I, fought with James probably over 200 times and he beat me over 200 times. <laughs> I, I lost teeth. I was, uh, we boxed before a charity event one time and he thought it'd be funny if he gave me a black eye, uh, puffed my eye up before the charity, which he did. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. He paid special attention just to, just to that one side of my face. And so all of my pictures, I have just a black eye with some like makeup on, I'm trying to hide and, and he's in the background just laughing at me. Now you have a you have a sort of a very amazing social uh, ability to connect with a lot of these athletes, with football players and these boxers, and through these connections, you've actually met a lot of the great fighters of our of our century, right? Yeah, but uh, it was a strange period of time at a at a strange place that there were uh, Alexis Arguello. I mean, just some amazing 
uh, Jeremy Williams, uh, um, just amazing fighters that just all happen to be accumulating at this gym and, and working out. Uh, uh, UL Casamayor, uh, Frez Akendo, just uh, all these people were at this place at the same time. Michael Nunn was working out at this gym while James was before they had a fight that Michael was supposed to win, and then James knocked him out. I can't remember if it was sixth or seventh round. Uh, and they would talk shit to one another consistently. But, uh, but yeah, no, it was, uh, I, I enjoyed that environment. I remember you would go to Vegas on the weekends frequently because you'd be asked to go to the flight fights to be like a doctor for them, a neurosurgeon yes, for them, I was, right? Well, so, I, it was strange because Vegas, they all have their own physicians. They all have ringside physicians. And um, the problem with James is he refused to let any other physician touch him. Mm. Uh, if he got cut, I was dealing with him. If something happened, I dealt with him. If he needed IV hydration, I'm the one that did it. So... Uh, I was always with James in his room or, or in his locker room uh, before and after, just making sure that he was 100%. Uh, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. But Mr. Arthur really was the person that arranged all of this. He was, uh, he was basically like James's father. Uh, James had two belts and then hit a slump, and that's when he met Mr. Arthur, and Mr. Arthur changed his life. Uh, I think it was hard for James to listen to some people. He would listen to Mr. Arthur. So, you know, this brings me to the, to the crux of where neurosurgery intersects with, with the, I'm going to call it boxing, but there's other fighting arts, obviously, MMA and, and you know, all of that variety now that's become very popular. You know, most neurosurgeons you ask are going to say that, wow, you know, there's so much potential for injury to the nervous system in boxing. In fact, that may be the intent of the sport, right? That a lot of folks have called for a while it's the, the banning of boxing or saying it's too barbaric or you know in a civilized society people shouldn't be doing this i don't have a strong opinion on this i actually kind of enjoy watching boxing but what do you what's your take i mean you've taken care of so many brain injured people you have the largest series of gunshot wounds to the brain i think ever published right uh, certainly for non-war non non uh yeah for civilian for civilians right in los angeles so you're on both sides of this right you're taking care of people who have serious head injuries and then you're also mixing with people who are in the live making their living in the business of that so to speak yeah well boxing is a dangerous sport um it's a different type of sport obviously the the goal is to take somebody's consciousness and if that doesn't work win on points obviously mm -hmm. But it's, uh, the athletes aren't as protected. And I, uh, in MMA uh, and other, uh, other, other styles of fighting, uh, they protect their athletes. If somebody's on their back, if they've been rattled, um, two or three punches and that fight's over. Even though that person may still be able to protect themselves, it's over. And, and, and that's really fair and the best thing to do is to protect the athlete. In boxing, there is this consideration that there's always the potential of somebody to have a knockout punch. So you'll see somebody take damage for 12 rounds with the assumption that maybe, you know, maybe they'll be able to win the fight uh, with a big shot, and, and that does happen. And those are the fights you remember where somebody is, is just losing and getting beaten and come knock somebody out, and they win. And that's... Not all that infrequent, but that's the problem. And, and you're letting somebody uh, 
um, take a lot of damage, take repetitive damage, but it's not just the damage they take. These are people that are losing massive amounts of weight, uh, not obviously so much in the heavyweight division, but everything else. These are people that are losing 20 pounds uh, over the course of weeks. Uh, they're extraordinarily dehydrated. Um, and I think the, the dehydration uh, really is a big part of it. Not only is it the repetitive trauma, but uh, the significant level of dehydration. It's problematic when you see a weigh-in and in the 12 hours after the weigh-in, a boxer gains 16 pounds, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically water. And that, that's a dangerous position to have somebody. You think because the, there's brain shrinkage, cerebral shrinkage, and the vessels get tight? Or? It's got to be something like that because the, the injuries that we see that kill people aren't shear injuries. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're not epidural hematomas. They're subdural hematomas, sometimes with contusions, sometimes without. Uh, but I think the dehydration and the repetitive trauma both contribute to that. Um, people look at the trauma, traumatic aspect of it, but it's a very hard thing to judge. Uh, they've tried to use CompuBox, uh, which is power punches, which is everything but a jab. But, but there's no true measure of force uh, there's tr no true measure of uh, uh, momentum uh, or changes in velocity or acceleration with a punch, much as they try to do in football. There's none of that in boxing. Uh, up until a number of years ago, there wasn't, other than for interested individuals, uh, a real accurate record of how many people died in boxing. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's problematic. Um, I tell you, I, I've been invited to go see some fights that are not sanctioned events. So most people watch this stuff on TV. That's sanctioned in smaller Indian casinos. And these are people obviously in the very lower ranks. And it is brutal. I mean, th th there's blood on the canvas. And they keep well, going, always, right? It's, it's a blood crazy. sport. That's why people like to sit in the first two rows as you get spitting blood on you. Yeah. And, um, it's brutal. It's that nature of a sport. But it's... Um, I think it's more dangerous for people like James who don't get knocked out. I think James has been down maybe twice, maybe three times in his career. Uh, I was there for two of them. One, he was hit in the back of the head by Sam Peter. The other was a slip uh, against Roy Jones Jr. But James doesn't go down. Uh, James, you can't really hurt James with a punch. And... I think that's a problem. I think you take more damage. It's almost a, a kinder, better thing if you lose consciousness and the fight's over and that keeps you from sustaining more damage. And I, and I, don't, know, I don't know what the right answer is, but it is a dangerous sport. People know it's a dangerous sport. People that are involved in the sport realize uh, there's a long-term chance of permanent injury. Uh, there's a short-term chance of potentially dying in the ring or outside the ring. Uh, you know, in close proximity to the fight. And people understand that, but this is a livelihood that if people didn't choose this, wouldn't have a lot of, lot of other options. Right, right. Um, there's not a lot of other sports or things that they could do. And uh, trying to take that livelihood or take that risk from people, it's not against the, lo the lot of jump off a mountain in a squirrel suit or parachute. Right. Um, you know, people take chances. These are the chances that these people are taking. These are the lives that these people lead. And um, 
the bigger worry for me isn't so much the injury that you know is there, but the fact that there's no organizational protection for these people. Uh, there's no retirement set up for these people. Um, these people make their money very quickly and they spend their money very quickly. In the many years I was with Mr. Arthur and James, when he did well, there were a lot of people around. When he didn't do well, there weren't a lot of people around. And it was just this sine wave. Uh, but James is very, very giving. Uh, I remember uh, he was at a charitable, uh, charitable event for autism uh, it was cold out. For some reason, I wasn't wearing a jacket, so he said, here, use my jacket, and gave me this big black velvet jacket that I think he had just bought, and then when I tried to give it back to him, he refused to take it back. I've heard this about about these fighters, that they so many of them come from uh, fair, very humble backgrounds, and so they know what it's like to be poor, right? They know what it's like to suffer, and there, as you said, there's an entourage right around them. Very much, but people like, especially with James, because James was a talker before a fight, because he was trying to get in people's heads. Yeah, that's what he was trying to do, and and that's the game he was playing, and and people dislike him for that. People just dislike James because he would gain weight before fights. Uh, James looked like he was out of shape. James is running eighteen to twenty miles a day. Uh, that's just the way he looks. <laughs> now, we have a mutual mentor, Mike Apuzo, who's been on this podcast before, and I owe a great debt of gratitude to Dr. Apuzo as to you. And I remember one of his earlier seminal papers was on um, stem cells for Parkinson's disease with stereotactic implantation. Uh, I, I want to say that was in like 89 or 91, very early era. And those were surgeries we were doing at USALA County Hospital. Right. This, so you were involved in those, right? Yeah, so he was taking... Uh, uh, adrenal gland, mashing it up in the background, putting it in something that looked like a pen coil, uh -huh. and then putting it in with a, a BRW frame bilaterally. Okay. So, I mean, one of the most obvious signs of, of, of the late effects neurological of, of boxing is Parkinson's, right? A form of Parkinson's. And, you know, so, so on the one hand, you're treating these people. On the other hand, you're seeing this happen. Do you find there's a lot of internal conflict with that? Like, because you, you're, you're the physician, right? Just like the physicians that take care of the NFL. Do you feel that there's a conflict internally with you? No. Um, you know, you're, the way I perceived it is my job was to keep him safe mm -hmm. uh, and to, to make sure that, that uh, there was no danger to him. Um, near the end of the career, he was taking a lot of fights where as you get older, you're a tenth of a second slower. Mm -hmm. uh, moves where he would never get hit, he was starting to get hit and get hit in the head. And, uh, and this was all at heavyweight. And, I, and so I was worried because he was getting hit much, much more than he used to be. Um, and it is worrisome. And so... When you tell somebody like James probably shouldn't be fighting, he's not going to like you very much because right. that's his, his income, that's his pride, that's what he does. But it, it was hard watching him fight people that just four years, five years before, he, he, he would have just destroyed and taking shots and, and, and not being able to defeat people that were not even remotely in his class. Um, but that's... That's the nature of a sport. That's the nature of what most people do. There's not a lot of people that get out clean. Um, but then people come back, like George Foreman, 
yeah. and at an older age, win a belt. Uh, and, and you see the things that don't make sense. Uh, you see fights that you're absolutely certain that your fighter wins that somehow they lose. Uh, Sam Peter uh, versus James Tony uh, in Los Angeles, the first fight. James won that fight hands down, lost the fight. Uh, and, and so that was difficult. And then you get caught up in it and then you end up doing stupid things. Uh, I was waiting by James's locker room and uh, I think it was the one of the duvas or something was uh, was training Sam Peter and they're walking by our locker room uh, and uh, happy and jumping and cheering and I threw a a Coke can at them for God, you know, I'm James's surgeon, but I heaved a Coke can in their direction and then they all stopped and looked at me and I was thinking, this is not a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't go any farther than that, but uh, yeah, you know, I I shouldn't be getting that caught up in it, but but you do. Um, Probably not a good thing. You see an opponent that's starting to wince when they're taking a shot into the ribs or liver or something and then you direct your athlete to go there but that's not my purpose my purpose was to to make sure James was was going to win and be okay do you do you think there will be a time when uh the the boxing federations will have what the NFL has which is some kind of concerted effort to to minimize trauma you have doctors you know working no. for them you don't think it'll ever go that way I I, I wish it would but it, I mean it, it's just getting worse uh uh, there are so many different belts and so many different organizations, each organization with its uh, its own board, its own rules. Um, standing accounts don't exist anymore mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, you know, to protect somebody. Uh, but then some changes are made that make no sense. Uh, Dooku Kim died in a 15-round fight uh, uh, and took a lot of damage over 15 rounds so within a number of months they converted boxing from 15 rounds to 12 rounds Mm -hmm. we actually looked at the data we looked at the mortality it didn't make a bit of difference it didn't change anything about the sport Uh, it kind of made people feel better that they were doing something Uh, but then you get the calls banned boxing somebody died that's the nature of the sport yeah um football is safer but People still have terrible injuries in football. Well, it's interesting because Joe Rogan has been saying on his podcast, and he does have the number one podcast in America, that he, he thinks football has more CTE effects globally than MMA. And it's interesting to me. I, I Obviously, the data is not clear on this. But, um, you know, I, I think that what you're talking about is very important. And, and, you know, the fact that you've been able to get a perspective on these athletes' lives, on these men's lives – um, is is just absolutely fascinating to me. So, Mike, I know we could talk about anything, uh, you know, the, all the amazing things that you've done in your career about skull-based surgery, about uh, how we've worked together in research and, and innovation, and I do want to have you back, but in respect to your time, uh, I do want to thank you for coming on today and being so honest and sharing those wonderful photos of you and James Tony boxing in the ring. Yeah, there will be a part two to this because I'm going to make sure James hears it. And then he's going to want his voice heard. So that <laughs> absolutely uh, that will be a, an interesting addendum to this, because uh, uh, he always wants his voice. Heard. We make exceptions for non neurosurgeons. <laughs> yeah, well, James uh, uh, James is a surgeon in his own right. That was actually one of my favorite Shaquille O'Neal stories. Is uh, one time he put his arm around me. He goes, you know, I always wanted to be a doctor, and he's looking down at me, and I'm thinking, 
this guy's really serious, you know? And I go, that's great. He goes, yeah, I want to be Dr. J. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are great. They have a great sense of humor. Well, thank you again for coming on, and thank you for all your mentorship of, uh, for me personally over the years. Thank you. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.